2, verses 1 through 3. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we have so much to be thankful for even in the midst of illness, pain, loss, even when life unravels, you are faithful. So we, we come to you today with joy, even if we feel empty. And we come before you with praise, even if we are broken. And in this season, especially, we think of your first coming, Lord Jesus that you took on full humanity with all of its suffering and all of its frailty, that you left glory that you might become our high priest to intercede for us and restore us to the Father by giving your own life for us. May that truth resound in our hearts and our minds and spill forth in our words in these days. Now I I trust that you have prepared your people for your word, which has the power to save those who will hear it. Amen. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has laid out our identity as God's exiles who are scattered throughout this world and throughout this time. God, in his infinite wisdom, by his sovereign power, has caused us to be born again. With this new life comes an eternal inheritance that we receive when Jesus appears to take us home, to deliver us out of exile. And so we wait joyfully for uh, his return. We wait joyfully and confidently. But with this new life also comes new conduct, a call to new conduct. And much of the letter of 1 Peter is filled with uh, conduct, the issue of conduct, how we are to live. If we are God's people in exile, waiting for Jesus' return, belonging to the human race, but at the same time not really belonging to the world that is alienated from God, we are exiles. But if that is the case, how are we to live? How are we to conduct ourselves. And here in chapter 1, Peter issues four commandments that call us to lives of hope, lives of holiness, lives of fearing God, and lives of love. We are to love one another earnestly. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter tells us that this new life also comes with a new appetite, new desires, a new hunger, At the center of his thought here is the command in verse 2 to long for or to crave or to yearn. I like the word crave. The uh, English Standard Version, which most of you use and that I'm, I'm preaching from, uses the phrase long for, but I like this word crave. 
We are to crave pure spiritual milk. And the goal of this craving is also in verse 2, that you may grow up into salvation. So we who have been born again must continue to grow. We must grow into this salvation. So far, Peter has really focused on salvation as a future event. When he mentions the salvation that we are waiting for, he is talking about a future event where Jesus appears, he returns, and, and saves us, delivers us. But here, Peter is emphasizing salvation as a present reality. We are already being saved. Salvation is something we already have. It is something we already experience. Growth in salvation means to progress, to mature, to grow in knowledge, to grow in understanding of truth, to grow in discernment, to be able, as we mature, to be able to tell truth from error, to grow in faithfulness, to know uh, increasing victory over sin, and temptation to be more Christ-like. That's really what growth means, is to be more like Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, we're to grow. We are to mature, to progress. Peter will write in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So grow, grow. And the New Testament uses other words. You saw here that in, first, uh, in a, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, the word increase, to be built up. Those are other phrases the Bible uses to talk about our growth. We are to grow spiritually. We're to grow in salvation. That is essential for the Christian life. And I often say that the most important thing about a Christian and a Christian's growth, the most important thing, if you will, a tell about whether or not a person is a Christian is what they desire. It's their appetites. See, when we come to Christ, it isn't just that our sin is forgiven and that we are cleansed, and it isn't then that we just are equipped to do the works of God, to do good things, it is that our desires, our hungers themselves are transformed. They are changed. We want different things. Appetite is everything. This is especially true of a new Christian who might struggle with the old life, with old sinful habits. Now, some, for some, coming to Christ, being converted, becoming a Christian is a, is a dramatic event, 
and things change, a lot of things about their life will change. For other people, it's more subtle, especially for someone who, like myself, grew up in the church and uh, lived a moral life until I came to grips with the gospel. Didn't make me any less of a sinner or any less separated from God. But at age seven, at the point that I understood the gospel and embraced Christ in faith, not a lot about my life changed. There was not a dramatic shift in how I thought or what toys I played with or where I went or the buddies that I had. So a lot of things will affect that in our lives, how old we are, where we are in life, what our background is. For some people, it's very dramatic. For others, it might be very subtle on the outside. But for some Christians, new believers, this break with the old is really hard. To break with old sinful habits, but new appetite is everything. Now, the truth is that as you mature spiritually, the burden of sin actually increases. It actually increases. In some ways, the struggle becomes more intense. And the reason for that is that as you mature by knowing God more, the more aware of sin you become the more sensitive to sin in your own life you become. The more I walk with Jesus, the more conscious I am of just how badly I need him. That is not immaturity. That is progress. That is Christian maturity. And it's a good thing. It can also be discouraging, though, if you're not ready for it. Of course, a growing Christian will also know victory over sin. A growing Christian will see through the lies of temptation faster and better. But despite the struggle with sin, the most defining thing about a Christian is the appetite. Do you hunger for the word? Do you hunger for holiness? Do you hunger to be with other Christians in fellowship? Do you hunger to serve, to give, to worship? These things say a lot about whether or not a Christian is growing up into salvation. So where where is your appetite today? Do you crave pure spiritual milk? Peter exhorts us to crave what we need to grow in our salvation. What do we need to foster this new appetite then so we can grow? Well, Peter tells us first that we need transformed relationships. We need transformed relationships. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away, because you have been born again, this so or therefore, because you have been born again through the living and the abiding word of God, what he says in the verses above here. You've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. You have been given life by the living and abiding word of God. That means the gospel was planted into the barren soil of your heart and produced life that that soil could never have produced on its own. You have been given this new birth then by the living and abiding word of God. Because of that, get rid of, put away malice, deceit, 
hypocrisy, envy, slander. All of these words are forms of ill will and harm to each other. They are all attitudes and behaviors that destroy community. Now, they all have their differences, and they, each of the terms kind of overlap. But that's what they all have in common, this strife, conflict, destruction of community. You see, the goal of God saving us is to restore right relationships. And the, that begins with restoring the relationship to God himself. That's the first thing God does when he saves us as he restores a broken relationship because of our sin and our rebellion. That's why we use the term reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. That relationship is reconciled or restored. But it also means restoring relationships among people. Where does that happen? In the church This body, this community of faith is a group of people, God's people, whom are restored to one another. What is pictured in the life of the church and a local church especially are these restored relationships, a way of relating to other people in the way God intended from the beginning as each of us is made in the image of God. So God restores these relationships, and we are able to have restored, transformed relationships with one another because we have been restored to God. So these attitudes and behaviors then that harm and destroy one another have no place in the body. They have no place in the church They have no place among the people of God. And Peter is saying, put those off. Get rid of those. The the command here, or the uh, I should say, it's really a, a, a verb that says, as you are doing this, crave. Putting off. So while you are putting away malice and deceit and these other things, while you are doing this, this is, it's plural, He's talking to the the church. He's talking to the body. He's talking to the community. So it's not just we as individuals have to put these things away. I need to deal with malice in my own heart. I need to deal with hypocrisy in my own heart. I need to fight those things. I need to put those things away. He's saying as a body, as a community, put these things off. Get rid of these things together. Get rid of them. They have no place. And you see, the fact that Peter sees this as so important to Christian growth shows us that this growing is to take place in the midst of the community of faith. In other words, if we are going to obey this command to long for or to crave pure spiritual milk, then it will be done together. The community itself is part of the nourishment we're to crave, and I'll get to that more in a minute. So when Mick was this morning announcing community groups, 
That's not just some other activity that we're throwing out there that you guys can think about. What we're saying by saying we have community groups that are all over the place, and he meant geographically, not unfocused, okay? <laughs> Though that may be true of some community groups. My own community group, we're, we're rather unfocused at times. We're all over the place. But he meant geographically. We have homes all over this area where you can be involved in a community, a smaller community, life on life, praying together, caring for each other. Dealing with sin together when that's appropriate. So this community then is part of the nourishment. We need transformed relationships. That's what we're after. Transformed relationships. Secondly, Peter tells us we need a special intensity. We need a special intensity like newborn infants long for or crave like newborn infants. How does an infant long for milk? Ravenously and often. This is the reason that parents, especially moms of newborns, are exhausted all the time. And those of you who have been moms and are moms, you know this. And dads, you know it too. You're exhausted that intensity, that intense hunger, craving is necessary because that new little life vitally needs nourishment. In fact, if a newborn baby doesn't have an appetite, we become concerned. That's a, that's a cause for, uh, for worry on our part. We call the doctor if the baby doesn't want to eat. So Peter is saying there ought to be an intensity behind our craving for nourishment. And he's not saying new Christians ought to crave milk this way. He's saying those that have this new life ought to crave the nourishment this way. He means that every Christian, whether new to the faith or mature in the faith, ought to long for pure spiritual milk with the intensity of an infant screaming to be fed. That's the kind of intensity. It's the fact that we have been born again, that we have new life that produces this kind of intensity. And if we don't have that kind of intensity, why not? Just like if a baby doesn't have the appetite that that little baby ought to have for its new little life. If we look at ourselves and we say, I don't have that intensity. I don't have that kind of appetite. We need to make a call. We need to ask the question, why? It could be that we are numbing ourselves with all of the stuff that the world tells us we need it could be that we are feeding ourselves the wrong kind of milk, which is Peter's next point. We need proper nourishment. We need proper nourishment. So we need transformed relationships. We need a special intensity. And we need proper nourishment. Now, Peter pictures this nourishment as milk. That's the, the metaphor 
Now, sometimes milk is used to describe simple elementary truths as opposed to solid food or spiritual meat. Let me show you a couple of examples where it's used this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and remember, the Corinthians were struggling. Paul is having to do a lot of correcting in this letter to the church in Corinth. And he says, But I, brothers, <clears throat> excuse me, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Paul is saying is, there should be by this time, O Corinthians, a certain level of maturity in your spiritual walk, in your being uh, made into the image of Christ, being remade into his image, there ought to be a certain level. I ought to be able to teach you certain truths that would be solid food, that require more thinking, that require more uh, growth on your part, that require more understanding, more faithfulness, more hunger, more commitment. But I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. So here, milk is used almost in a negative way to say these are elementary truths and those are good and those are healthy, but you need more. You ought to have a greater hunger. You ought to be, you ought to be eating hot dogs. I'm still using baby food with you. You ought to be making your way up to hot because hot dogs are the, you know, <laughs> if you can eat a hot dog, right? That's the, you ought to be eating meat steak by this time. This is why, as we go to Bible studies, preaching on Sunday mornings, we don't just leave it at elementary truths. And there are lots of churches and lots of preachers who do that. Now, that doesn't mean we abandon them. And whenever somebody is preaching or teaching, we have to take into account that there are, there are Christians at all levels of maturity here. There are new believers, there are young believers they're believers that have been walking with Christ for decades. They know their Bibles. Okay? And it's not just knowledge. It's about faithfulness too. You can know a lot and still not be mature. But you can't be mature without knowing. Okay? But a lot of churches, a lot of pastors approach it that when you come in on Sunday morning, the message needs to just always be ABC. ABC. And there's some advantages to that. Because greater numbers of people can grasp simpler truths. But if you just leave it there, what you end up with a, a church that is a mile wide and an inch deep. There has to be greater feeding. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you should be moved on to solid food, but I'm still having to feed you milk. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 here. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, the same thing, has the same rebuke for his audience. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a great description of Christian maturity. It is knowing a lie from that which is true. It is having been so immersed in the gospel and the truth of God and doctrine, teaching, that you can spot a lie when it rears its head. But again, it's this, I'm having to give you milk. You should be teachers by now. You should be moving on to solid food. In both of these, milk is not positive because it's a sign of immaturity when someone should have been mature. Peter is not using milk this way. That's a, that's a mistake that we can fall into is by taking an image that, or a metaphor that's used in one part of Scripture and just automatically transferring it over to another place where it's used. Peter's not using it that way. Peter means milk positively. It is nourishment. It is sustenance. Some translations have the phrase pure milk of the word instead of pure spiritual milk. And maybe you are looking at your Bible this morning and you're wondering, why does he keep saying pure spiritual milk? My Bible says pure milk of the word. It may be that you grew up with the New American Standard or the Old King James Version or the New King James Version. The, uh, the New Christian Standard Bible, which is a newer translation, and very good, by the way, They all have this phrase, pure milk of the word. But pure milk of the word is probably not the best way to understand Peter's phrase here. Peter is not talking about the word, the scriptures, as we think of them. Milk here, pure spiritual milk, is a broader, bigger picture of nourishment than just the scriptures. Now, I know this kind of messes with a traditional kind of ingrained understanding of these verses because it has been in Bibles for so long this way, the pure milk of the word. But the trouble comes from the word that the ESV, the version I'm using here, translates as spiritual. And to really understand what Peter's saying here, we have to talk a little bit about this Greek word, okay? Now... You're going to have to go with me on this, all right? I don't do this super often. I try not to get super technical, okay, on Sunday mornings, but here we go. This is an illustration of meat versus milk in the bad sense, right? And I think you guys can handle it, all right? The Greek word here, and by the way, the the word pure here just means unfiltered, direct. We might use the word organic as opposed to synthetic, So it's pure, not in the sense of purified, but pure in the sense that it's it's unfiltered. It's real. It's genuine. It's not synthetic. But the word spiritual is the word logikos. Okay? Logikos. You will hear in it a familiar word to many Christians, and that's the word logos. Logos is one Greek word for the English word word. The Logos. We have a Bible software named after this. Logos Bible software. All right. Most of us know this word from John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, 
and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, word, is this word logos. So Jesus was the logos of God. He was with God and was God, is God, okay? So this word logos, then, is the root of this word logikos. Um, And that's why some translate this the pure milk of the word, because they look at this word logikos, and they go, logos, word. There are a number of reasons, and this is not the best way here. So again, now I don't want to get super technical. If you have more questions, you can talk to Marcus Devite. Because Marcus just took Greek, okay, down at Corbin, all right? Anyway, but we don't want to get technical. But the problem here is that the word spiritual is really not the best choice either. There is a different Greek word for spiritual. And Peter will use it two times in the verses that immediately follow here. So by using this word logikos, he is trying to get at something different, or he would have just used the Greek word for spiritual. He's trying to say something else. So what in the world does he mean then? Well, it should be translated, logikos should be translated logical or reasonable. That's what the word means. But then that leaves us with pure logical milk. And what does he mean by that, logical milk? Sounds like a good band name. I love logical milk. Okay. What does he mean? What does that mean, logical milk? Well, what he means is crave, fitting, or appropriate milk. In other words, your new life, watch, this is why it's important to understand this word. Your new life in Jesus needs the right kind of nourishment. It needs the right kind of milk. It needs nourishment that fits your new life in him. If God has caused you to be born again, then you cannot nourish this life with all of the garbage you used to nourish your old life with. That's what Peter's getting at. That someone who has been saved because of the living, abiding word of God cannot continue to nourish that new life with garbage. It must have pure reasonable or fitting, or maybe the best word is compatible milk. Crave the right kind of nourishment, just like you might feed a horse hay and oats, but you can't stuff hay and oats into the tank of your Honda Civic and expect it to run. You can't pour Cheerios into your rose garden and expect it to grow. That's not the right nourishment. That's not the right kind of fuel, if you will. That's the wrong nourishment. It doesn't fit. This new life that we've been given requires nourishment that reasonably lines up with it, that fits it. That is compatible with the new life, and it nourishes it in the right way. 
So maybe then crave pure, compatible milk is what Peter's saying. It's a milk that nourishes the growth, Christian growth in your life. It nourishes you. It doesn't malnourish you. It doesn't leave you sick. It doesn't leave you anemic without energy to live to obey God. So the question then becomes, well, what is this milk? What is this nourishment? Well, does that include the scriptures? Yes, of course it does. So you see, the idea of the word is not foreign here, but it's just bigger. It's a bigger picture. You need the scriptures. That's the key to this nourishment. But it means immersing ourselves in the things of the spirit. So you see, the idea of spiritual is not foreign to the text either. We need the word. We need to immerse ourselves in the things of the spirit. This milk then is all that is nourishment for this new life, the word, prayer, fellowship, encouragement, anything that produces growth. You might even say that really the, the, the reasonable milk or the compatible milk is grace. It is the grace of God. And I think of Peter's uh, closing in 2 Peter 3.18 that I read a few minutes ago. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in those things. That is compatible milk. We are to crave these things with the ravenous appetite of a newborn because we have this new life. We have this new birth. Okay, so we need the proper nourishment, and we're to pursue those things. We are to scream like a baby for those things. We have to go after them. Lastly, we need a reliable taste. We need a reliable taste. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, or you could say, as indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Or since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This phrase, if indeed you have tasted, is very much like we, we use the word if this way. If I'm talking to my wife and we say, yeah, I need, to, I need to run to the pharmacy and pick up those meds. And I say to her, you know, if I'm going to run by the pharmacy, I also ought to stop by the library and return those books. When I say if I'm going to the pharmacy, haven't we already decided I'm going to the pharmacy? That's not in question. That's not a possibility. It's a way of saying if this is true and it is, then I ought to do this. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying if you have tasted, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying, and since you have, as you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have already experienced I love this word taste. He's capturing an experience, something you know to be true. You have already experienced transformed relationships. We need to continue to put away, to get rid of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. But we've already tasted, we've already experienced transformed relationships. We have already Experience this, like a newborn infant, this spiritual hunger, this kind of craving. We have already experienced 
this nourishment that comes from God's grace that he provides to us in all kinds of different ways. You have tasted. It is the taste of grace. It is the taste of forgiveness. It is the taste of glory. It is the taste of eternity. You've already tasted these things. And this, this image of tasting, is, it's the most vivid of the senses. One writer I was reading pointed out that it's the most intimate of the sentence. It's the only sense in which you actually ingest, you, you actually take something into yourself that becomes part of you. Tasting, eating, drinking. So it's this vivid, intense experience that the Lord is good. You've already experienced these things. Here for Peter, taste is, is the idea of experience of something now that is far off, that it remains. And I think that what Peter says here, as indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, he means you've had a taster. It's that sense of when you walk into the house or into a restaurant and you smell the food. Or you're in your home and you're in the kitchen. For me, it's my wife is probably most of the time, it's her preparing food and I smell it and it's good. And I walk over and figure out some way to get a taste of it, right? And that taste only serves to increase your what? Your appetite. That's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, you've already had the taste. And he's looking at the fact that you've already come to Christ. You already have this new life. You've already been born again. And in being born again, you have experienced these things. They are just a taste of what is to come. But they are enough. They are sufficient to increase and to foster this kind of appetite, this kind of craving that you ought to have as God's exiles in this life. This desire for pure, compatible milk, the kind of milk that will nourish you. And behind Peter's words is Psalm 34. We're going to see, as we work through the rest of this chapter and into the next chapter, Psalm 34 has to be a text that Peter is reading every day as he writes this letter. He has been meditating on Psalm 34. You will see it over and over here, and I could show you more examples, but we'll get there okay, as we continue in 1 Peter. But here you can see Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, you who are his people. For those who fear him have no lack. You see it? Provision. Just like milk for a baby. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You have tasted that the Lord is good. And that is proof you can rely 
on that taste. It is a reliable taste. You can rely on that, that the Lord will supply, that there is nourishment for you to crave and to feast on. By the way, just a final note, David writes Psalm 34 while he is in exile. He is on the run for his life, living among Israel's enemies, the Philistines. And the writing of the psalm follows an episode in which David has appeared before the king of the Philistines and feigned this madness and escaped certain execution. But David is in exile. He's on the run when he writes this psalm. And I have no doubt that as Peter is reading Psalm 34 and understanding David's experience, he sees it mirrored in the exile of God's people today. And he's writing to the church and he's saying, look, you have been given new life. Crave this pure, unfiltered, compatible, right, proper milk, nourishment to sustain this new life. You've already tasted through faith that the Lord is good. You know this. Do not abandon it and get rid of anything that would hinder that craving. And what's the most important thing? The transformed relationships. And I told you, we come back to it here. The transformed relationships in the community. If we don't put away these things, they obstruct the hunger. So if we are looking at our lives, according to Peter's words here, if we're looking at our lives and we're saying, I don't know if I have that intensity. I don't know if I have that kind of craving like a newborn craves milk. When we call and we say, the baby isn't as hungry, he or she isn't eating as much, my soul isn't craving as much as it should, Peter is already telling us that the divine diagnosis is the first thing you need to look at is make sure that among you, you are not operating and living in malice and deceit and slander and envy and these kinds of things. That's the context. And that those transformed relationships can be the thing, or I'm sorry, a lack of putting those things away, not practicing those transformed relationships, can be the thing that is obstructing your appetite, that's keeping you from being as spiritually hungry for nourishment as you should be. So, David is in exile when he writes this. We are in exile and it becomes this picture over and over again as we fulfill God's promises and his plans for salvation, for history, for his own glory. We are to crave this pure, spiritual, compatible milk and nourishment. We're to go after it. And so, Lord, we come this morning and ask